Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. In today's special episode, Eva Segaloff and Hans Prennan chew the ASCO fat with Bishul Gayawali. If you've not heard our previous episode with Bish, he's a medical oncologist from Nepal, currently working at Queen's University in Canada. It's an enlightening discussion covering practice-changing developments and controversial trials. As ever, you'll find full bios, Twitter handles and all the links to the papers discussed in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Podcast. Well, g'day, g'day, g'day. It's one of our favourite podcast guests back for another appearance. Bish, lovely to have you back. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be back again. And uh, with us, the intimidable Hans Prennan. Hi, Eva. How are you doing? Yeah, it's good to have you on this post-ASCO podcast, Hans, because you just admitted before that you haven't been and you've come on to learn what happened at ASCO. I have to admit, indeed, because the problem now with this virtual meeting is, you know, we don't have that much good weather in Belgium, but when the weather is nice, it's weekend, and then it's virtual, then you have to be really uh, very tough to sit in front of the computer. Yeah, but... Hands, be honest, I don't see at the meeting very often in Chicago either. Yeah, but Chicago in June is also nice weather, as you know. Uh, fantastic. So we are doing some podcasts on tumour streams. Don't miss those. So lung, G-U-G-I. But this is a very special podcast because, Bish, you cover everything. <laughs> except for him. Ah, except for him. <laughs> but really, it's your perspectives, and anyone who doesn't follow Bish on Twitter, you're missing out. Immediately start following because you give this amazing commentary and overview, not only a cost benefit in the first world, but also for low and middle income countries and really the global perspective. So on behalf of everyone, we love you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It means a lot. Yeah, I guess it comes from my background of uh, having worked in low-income country as well as high-income country. And also because I I don't have a specific tumor type, I, I treat uh, most solid adult solid tumors. So sometimes I think when you are focusing on only one small subgroup of cancer patient population, then you forget the bigger picture and I think sometimes it takes you to zoom out of the focus and take a broad look across uh, several disciplines of not only oncology, but even several disciplines of medicine. Because sometimes I feel like when you are sharing these debates that we have in the field of oncology with, let's say, you know, pulmonologists or neurologists, they think that we are having crazy discussions because sometimes they can't believe that believe the things that we do in oncology. (laughs) Well, it's true, but I noticed you were quite vocal about the newly FDA-registered anti-dementia drug that went against the expert panel. So 
maybe neurologists have got the oncology disease. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tweeted out that uh, neurology, welcome to the world of oncology, because this one drug approval in neurology is, is nearly every day a daily routine in oncology. I think the problem is that because Alzheimer's disease has such a big patient population, and this drug is priced at like $60,000 US dollars a year per patient. So if we are going to use it on every Alzheimer's, uh, every person with Alzheimer's disease, and this is going to be a huge financial commitment for any country, right? And that's why every person sees the problem. And I can't find a single person who is saying, wow, this was a great decision by the FDA. Every person I know is saying this was a bad decision. This drug should not have been approved. But if we look closely, then that's what's happening in oncology every day. So if we can see that it's a problem in neurology, why can't we see that it's a problem in oncology? And that's what I meant by probably we are so much focused into a small section of uh, cancer and that we forget the bigger picture, A and B. Uh, most of our drugs cater to small subset of population. So it's the patient pool is not as big as Alzheimer's disease. So we don't see the economic impact instantly. Of course, in Alzheimer's disease, they might actually forget they've taken the tablet and so they take another one. So you probably have to double it. <laughs> it was interesting for me to draw parallel with oncology because I think what happened in oncology is exactly what's going to happen in neurology. Because in oncology, if we talk about surrogate endpoints, which we are going to talk in a few minutes, let's say response rate. So when we first came up with the idea of response rate, we wanted to use a metric to help us to make that decision about whether or not to take a drug to a phase three trial. So from a phase two trial, how do we decide whether or not that drug is good enough to do a randomized trial and test in a phase three? So we, we came up with the idea of response rate. When response rate or the RIGIS criteria was first developed, it was meant to be used in clinical trials. It was not meant to be used as a tool to help you decide whether or not to approve a drug. But several years later, with dozens of industry-sponsored CMEs and educational lectures and so-called educational opportunities, some of us started to get convinced that, oh, this is a surrogate endpoint. Uh, this is probably predictive of clinical benefit. And a couple of drugs started to get conditional approval based on response rate. So there were more such CMEs where oncologists started to be taught that, oh, this is an important endpoint. It matters for the patients. So when it was first developed, nobody thought it mattered to the patients. But after a couple of drugs started to get conditional approval, we started to get convinced that, yes, this is a surrogate endpoint. But now drugs are starting to get full approval based on response rate, not even conditional. They are getting full approval. And now I think almost, I don't know, like one third or maybe even half of we oncologists think that, oh, response rate is an actual clinical endpoint. Uh, this is clinical benefit. So it started with not an endpoint, became a surrogate endpoint, and became a clinical endpoint now during the course of time, not because any science changed, but because we started to get more and more drugs approved on the basis of that, and we started to listen to more and more these industry-sponsored CMEs. Now, I am, I am making a prediction that exactly the same thing will happen with Alzheimer's disease. Today, nobody thinks beta-amyloid plaque it's any endpoint, like it's, it's not meaningful at all. It doesn't matter at all. Today, everyone is unanimous about it. But one drug got approved. Now that 
drug will start to have its own CME events, educational opportunities, key opinion leaders teaching us how wonderful beta amyloid plaque is and why it is important to reduce the plaque. And there will be, and because this drug has set a precedent, there will be other three, four, five other drugs with the same exact mechanism of action coming into the market. So there will be more and more industry joining in to teach us why beta amyloid plaque is such an important thing. And I think five years later, everyone will start to think, oh, this is a surrogate endpoint. I think you're right, Pish. But on the other hand, let's say for in oncology, then if you go for some rare disease, let's speaking about NTRK fusions, it's not one disease, can happen in any tumor. We can speak about RET, we can speak about whatever you want. But there it's impossible to use something else than, let's say, response. You could maybe go for PFS, but there's never a comparative arm because it's impossible to do, for example, a study with NTRK fusion in lung and then to have both arms and do a big phase three trial. So how do we solve it there? I think in that place, maybe response is a good marker or circuit endpoint, let's say. Yeah, I'm, I mean, this is like whenever we talk about randomization, one of the common issues we face with is what do we do about rare tumor types? So I take a point, but I think, uh, for example, we have been successful in doing randomized trial even of a disease as rare as adrenocortical cancer. We have a phase three randomized trial even in adrenocortical cancer. So yes, it is difficult, but I think if the rare cancer community comes together, then globally, like in, in one institution, in one country, it is obviously almost impossible to do a trial of these rare cancers. But if the global community can come together, then even the rare cancers are not rare in a global scale. They are rare in an individual country level scale. Yeah, but in theory, I agree. But in practice, let's say that you're a company and you have to do this. It means you need to open maybe 500 sites worldwide which is an enormous uh, financial burden as well. So in an ideal world, of course, you're 100% right. But I think in practice, it's very, it's not really feasible. Oh, we could have novel designs with teletrials and, you know, the palaver in opening up a trial in every site and, you know, the CROs. It's an industry that exists to support itself, I think. I totally agree with you that the trial implementation is so much more complex than it should be. Like there are so much of there is so much of red tape that is not necessarily protecting anyone, not the physicians, not the patients, but just adding complexity to to trial implementation. And I think that's another topic that we can discuss about is how we can run pragmatic clinical trials instead of these uh, you know burdensome uh, clinical trials that that is currently being done. Yeah, but to come back to your point about uh, rare tumors, I'm I'm not against conditional approvals. We can give conditional approvals on the basis of surrogate endpoint so that patients will have early access to the drug. But the conditional approval comes with a condition that the clinical benefit has to be confirmed. And if it fails to confirm, then the approval will be revoked. So that's the whole package. The problem is we are trying to get only the first half of the package. Like everyone is fighting for the first half of the package. The patients are fighting for early access. The physicians are fighting for early access. The industry is fighting for early access. The regulators are giving early access. But the second half of the package, who is going to care about that? Okay, did the clinical benefit actually confirmed? Oh, it has been 10 years. The, the confirmatory trial hasn't uh, been completed. Who is going to take action? Okay, the confirmatory trial is completed, but the clinical benefit was not confirmed. So 
This is an amazing discussion, and we haven't even started on ASCO. <laughs> so how does ASCO make you feel, Bish? Do you come out of there just full of dismay, or are you all pumped up with the hype? No, the, ASCO is a great meeting, and I always, every year I look forward to ASCO meeting. I I find a huge, like, for last two years, we haven't been able to do it in person. But when we are able to do it in person, I find a huge disconnect between what I hear from people whom I actually meet in person during the meeting versus what I see on social media. So I think in social media, it's all hype. Everyone, I don't know why, they just want to say every new trial is an amazing trial. Every new drug is a game changer. Every new presentation is a Great news for our patients, great day for the world. I don't know why we have to do that. I don't know like what perks you get from doing that. I actually wanted to know that because I don't want to miss out if there are any perks of saying that. I, I shall. Know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bet uh, you don't get many perks. When you meet people in real life, like during the real ASCO meetings, when I used to meet people in person, I would find that, yeah, most of the oncologists actually share the type of concerns that I share or we share. And I think the social media, it's just, uh, it's a disproportionate sample. I think the, the sample size, uh, the data we see on, on Twitter, for example, is heavily skewed. But Hans has only learned his ASCO from Twitter this year. So yeah. uh... <laughs> <laughs> so you are getting a very biased sample, Hans. Okay, and, so and, here's... And And the podcast. So here's the question, Bish. What do you think was like the main outstanding theme this year? Yeah, the ASCO annual meetings theme of, uh, you know, equity and and quality inclusion, that that is an important theme for, uh, you know, we cannot just uh, care about cancer patients in one part of the world. We need to think about cancer patients all over the world for every cancer type, rare or common across uh, geographies, across boundaries, and across all sort of artificial divisions that we make in terms of gender, nationality, race, ethnicity, and all those uh, boundaries. Because of my interest in global oncology, at every ASCO meeting, I try to look at, uh, like, are there any abstracts that can immediately change practice globally? Unfortunately, there were none that uh, I came across that could change practice immediately tomorrow. But having said that, uh, two trials... uh, that are globally relevant were that were discussed in the plenaries were the Outback trial of cervical cancer and the Jupiter Zero Two trial of nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So the cervical cancer, locally advanced cervical cancer Outback trial, uh, tested whether giving adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to chemo radiation, which is the standard of care, improved outcomes. And the answer was it did not. So this is, in fact, an important trial. But the reason why I said it may not be immediately practical tomorrow in low-income countries is because I think that in low-income countries, even that delivery of standard of care is a problem. Even like patients are, are dying because they can't get access to basic radiotherapy services. For example, in Nepal, if I have to talk about Nepal, I think there are only like four or five centers in the whole country that actually have a radiotherapy machine. Patients who are living far away from there, getting an ideal standard of care of cisplatin-based chemo radiation on a schedule, that's a big ask. So yes, this trial said that giving adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to standard of care is not meaningful, but uh, these patients were not having, were not getting access to standard of care in the first place. But a couple of good things to say about this trial. 
See, I, I don't only have bad things to say. I have some very good things to say about trials where they. Of course, it was an Australian who presented it. Yeah, That's the good the, thing. Yeah, it was. It was. One is that this was this was the only plenary abstract that was funded by public funds. It was an, a publicly funded academia-sponsored trial. And I had published a paper a couple of years ago about lung cancer, where we looked at all the interventions in lung cancer that have improved survival. And we saw that almost half of them were publicly funded academia-sponsored trials. Sometimes we forget, we keep on saying that, oh, the new survival gains in any cancer has been brought by industry-funded trials only, but I, I want to make it a point that publicly-funded academia-sponsored trials are really important. They answer the questions that industry-funded trials do not necessarily answer because the priorities are different. And without these academia-sponsored publicly-funded trials, we would not have answered to these important questions that we needed answering. So this is like a plea for all the governments in the world to put more money into publicly-funded academia-sponsored trials. Hey, Bish. No one from government listens to this podcast. <laughs> but it was very good to have your plea in there. Either you're going to email this link to your yeah, prime minister. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I will. And another note, and maybe it will not come as a surprise, this is also the only trial that had in among the plenaries that had overall survival at the primary endpoint, not surprisingly, because... This was a, uh, an academia-sponsored trial, so they, they knew that overall survival was of prime importance. And the other trial was about nasopharyngeal carcinoma and the use of a new checkpoint inhibitor for metastatic uh, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. It improved PFS, and it also had a hint of improving overall survival. And the reason I'm excited about this trial is, is for, two, uh, for, for three reasons, I guess. One is this, like nasopharyngeal carcinoma is a rare cancer in the Western world, but it's a common cancer in the Asian population. And this was a trial conducted entirely in China, Taiwan, and Singapore. So this is what the spirit of global oncology is, global collaboration is, mutually benefiting from, from each other. So as Hans mentioned, it would be impossible to run a nasopharyngeal carcinoma trial in, in United States or, or Canada. We, we would not, we would never have any patients. But because it was common in China, Taiwan, and Singapore, they ran a trial there. Now we have good phase three randomized evidence that we can use for patients all over the world. So this trial bore the spirit of global collaboration and global oncology. And that's the reason why I'm, I'm happy about it. Also, one more thing is because this is a locally developed Chinese-manufactured checkpoint inhibitor. So eager to see when this drug gets launched in other parts of the world, at what price it will be launched. Because uh, right now, I know that in China, it costs substantially less than what nivolumab or pembrolizumab will cost. So if this drug can be priced at a lower price in the rest of the world, then for the first time, probably, I know that I'm being too optimistic, but it has the potential to lead to price competition and lowering of drug prices. One example we have already seen uh, of price competition lowering drug prices in China is Ecotinib. Ecotinib is an EGFR TKI for lung cancer, similar to Gefitinib and Allotinib. It's a locally manufactured EGFR TKI. And when Ecotinib was launched, it was launched at a lower price. And not only the price of Ecotinib lowered, but because of that competition, the price of Gefitinib and Allotinib also lowered in China. But I'm waiting for that to happen in the rest of the world. But then, Bish, you might get a discussion if it's only yeah, Asian people that were included. Does it is it that active in Caucasians or in uh, people around the world? Because sometimes we have the discussion. 
Yeah, previously we have seen these discrepancies, especially like with the drugs like S1, right, in, yeah. in, in GI cancers. But this is a checkpoint inhibitor. So A, I think people are, I don't know, they are, they are more confident about checkpoint inhibitors. But B, I think unlike colorectal cancers or gastric cancers, there is less option for the rest of the world not to trust this trial because otherwise it's impossible to run a trial of nasopharyngeal carcinoma elsewhere. But having said that, because it's a checkpoint inhibitor and we have seen checkpoint inhibitor used in multiple tumor types, they could easily run a trial of checkpoint inhibitor in, let's say, melanoma, like the same checkpoint inhibitor in melanoma and see whether it has uh, similar outcomes. And then you could extrapolate that to other, other tumor types. So, Bish, I can't wait till my adjuvant aspirin trial is positive and then I've achieved all. It's academic, round the world, and the cheapest, but we have to wait for the outcome. All of us uh, globally are waiting for that because that would be the example of a trial that you could uh, that could be practiced immediately tomorrow across the world, right? Yeah, yeah my, my fame is riding on a little uh, aspirin. Actually, it's John. It's the John Chia's trial, trial, I should say, our colleagues in Singapore. So what else stood out for you at ASCO, Bish, this DFS-OS debate? Shall we get on to that? Yeah, it's a never-ending debate. We had this debate after Adora trial, and we have we are having this debate after this ASCO. One good thing about this ASCO plenary was that there were, I guess, three trials in there. Other plenary was the vision trial of prostate cancer. Oh, that trial has lots of problems. Okay, so let me talk about vision trial, then then we'll talk about the DFS-OS thing. The vision trial, I think, yeah, from Australia, Professor Ian Davis provided very good uh, commentary on the trial on Twitter. So yeah, Twitter is not all bad if you know who to follow. <laughs> I like his comments very much. So you know, the, the Vision trial tested this lutetium-based PSMA agent in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. But like, I think this is like in our last paper about ESMO MCBS, which you kindly discussed in your podcast. Thank you. We talk about ten different points that we need to consider while evaluating a trial, and one of those points was about the appropriateness of the control arm. Is it a standard control arm or a substandard or inferior control arm? Because if the control arm is not appropriate, it's, if it's not reflective of our practice, then any advantage we see with the newer agent is falsely exaggerated. So with vision trial, I have issues with the control arm because they say that the control arm can be physician's choice treatment, but they specifically exclude chemotherapy, radium, immunotherapy. So basically, they don't allow anything that you would have liked to use. So what they allow is best supportive care, which is nothing. Or they allow you to use androgen receptor inhibitor after the patient has already progressed. So the big debate was why didn't they allow cabazitaxel as a control arm chemo, which we know is the standard of care. And if you look at the patient population, these are patients with ECOG PS of zero, like majority of the patients. Like they are not ineligible for cabazitaxel. So, yes, it improved OS. And usually when a drug improves OS, I don't have any problems, unlike surrogate endpoints and not improving OS. But if the control arm is not appropriate, then like you can expect to improve OS if you are not giving the ideal control um, treatment. So, yeah, this was in plenary and some people thought it practice changing. But uh, I think if you think it is practice changing, then you have to use it in that specific subgroup of patient population that is at the very last line of treatment where the patient would otherwise not have gotten anything. 
That's the caveat. And the other two trials uh, in the plenary, yes, uh, the debate of DFS and OS in the Olympia trial and the keynote trial of pembrolizumab. First, let me talk about the keynote trial. So this was Erzabin pembrolizumab versus uh, placebo, improved DFS. We do not know the results of OS8. OS data are immature. It's the same debate that we had with Adora. And in fact, in Adora, we had pretty impressive hazard ratio. So it's the same talking points. In an adjuvant setting, adjuvant setting treatment means necessarily we are treating everyone. So that means we are over-treating some patients. So in that case, the benchmark should necessarily be overall survival. And see, these are drugs that come with substantial toxicities, including financial, but also physical toxicities. In fact, in this particular keynote trial, the incidence of grade 3 or higher, so these are serious adverse events, grade 3 or higher adverse events, was 15% higher with the, the drug versus placebo, 33% versus 18%. And B, quality of life in an adjuvant trial, like there is only one direction quality of life can go. It's downhill. We can only have, the drug can only have detrimental effects on quality of life because the alternate is no treatment. So these continue to be the talking points for all the adjuvant trials and why DFS is not an adequate endpoint. And uh, the same will hold true for the Olympia trial as well of uh, BRCA positive triple negative breast cancer. Because again, it's a huge percentage of the patients, they do not, they did not have the event. They were disease-free even without getting olaparib. And again, we are we are overtreating all in the hope of preventing relapse for some. And one more one more point for both these trials is we should also see what percentage of these control arm patients got the drug at the time of relapse. Because, for example, in kidney cancer, we know that immunotherapy is the standard of care in the relapse setting. I think we can have the discussion in in many many tumor types eh? because if I remember correctly, in GIST patients we had for years the same discussion. Eh? So in the adjuvant setting, I was never a big believer of the adjuvant cleavec because I think it just avoided or it delayed the relapses in the adjuvant setting. But still, and then suddenly they find some OS difference, but maybe find giving it a bit earlier. So it's still I think it's relevant for other tumor types as well. This discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Did you answer my Twitter poll on this question? Yeah, I, I answered your Twitter poll. Oh, I want to listen to the final results. Ah, well, we've got 14 hours and 48 minutes left, but at the moment okay. we've got 305 <laughs> votes. So the question, Great, yeah. the tweet was, calling all colleagues at hashtag ASCO21, please vote on this vital question quotation marks, would you prescribe 12 months of adjuvant IO for any disease where data exists on the basis of improved DFS? And it was yes or no slash waiting for OS data. So 305 votes, Bish, and we've got 48% at yes and 52% (laughs) at no waiting for OS data. Oh, my God. I never expected this. (laughs) I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll tweet it out again after this podcast goes out with all your millions of fans and see if we've changed uh, opinions there. Yeah, and I think there is some skewness of this question based on tumor type that the oncologist is treating. So I do see that. And I think the lung cancer doctors were very appropriately surprised when the breast cancer community thought Olympia was a, was a practice-changing trial. Absolutely. So 
Hans, have you got another question for Bish about uh, standouts from ASCO? Just to keep me informed about ASCO, you mean, so that I didn't miss yeah. anything else. What else, yeah, what else does Hans need to know from ASCO? Oh, I wanted to get uh, your opinion on, on one abstract. There was one abstract that took me by surprise. This was an abstract in breast cancer. They wanted to predict which patients will have brain metastasis. So how they did that was they tried to look for circulating tumor DNA in the cerebrospinal fluid. Yes, I saw that. Okay. Yeah, scientifically, maybe a neat concept. But I tried to imagine the patients, and that means they had to undergo lumbar puncture. Yes. And there is no possibility of a therapeutic intervention. So these patients underwent lumbar puncture. And these are, these are, I think, patients in the adjuvant setting after they received all the adjuvant treatment. But I, I don't know. I felt bad for the patients. It was quite an extraordinary study. And I still think the CTDNA question has got a long way to go in terms of timing. It's a good question. Thinking about the impact of the trial, I mean, we really have lost our way a little bit with trials, haven't we? We're designing trials around products and and that means they're designed around markets. How do you think we did a little session uh, with a consumer on a consumer, a paper about consumers and how uh, consumers want to be involved in research? So what do you think they would have said for that research with the lumbar punctures? Yeah, that's that's what uh, has been troubling me. Like, I don't know how patients give consent. Maybe like this, these patients are gods. Like, I would never consent to something like that. Like, you know, in an adjuvant setting after having undergone all treatment, uh, just to get. So the, yeah, the participants in the trial, I have huge respect for them because this is something that I myself would never consent to. I guess for for the consumers and participants, it's so personal or or it's so much on an individual level if I get my cancer back. And then you look at the much bigger global picture. But the problem here was there was going to be no intervention, right? Even if it was positive and negative. So, yeah. But maybe that's the next step that they want to do something preventive in the ones that they predict that brain mass will come. Maybe that's the idea behind it, of course. Adjuvant intrathecal pembro. I can just see the next plenary. Okay, so Bish, there was uh, a little bit of controversy or not so much controversy but a little bit perhaps of opening up this issue of sexual harassment in oncology. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I, I noticed that abstract and I was I was honestly shocked uh, to see the results because the results, it is an embarrassment on our whole profession because if I remember accurately, I think it said 80% of the female respondents, uh, respondents uh, mentioned that they did have uh, an experience of uh, being sexually harassed and, and 55 or something percent of the males uh, had the same. So that is so shocking. I feel so embarrassed because that... Like if you think about it, that means almost almost every female oncologist I know has experienced that, and one out of every two male oncologists I know has had that experience. I don't know how it fares with other disciplines, but this is a huge embarrassment on our own profession. If we do this same survey after two or three years, and if this number has not uh, dropped dramatically, how do we even look uh, to ourselves in the mirror? 
And in next week, uh, we're actually interviewing Pam Quinn. So she's, you know, really the sta- the one of the leaders in actually having this presented at ASCO. It was pretty groundbreaking, I think, and opening up this topic for people to discuss and even consider. Yeah, for any problem, I think, uh, like my personal opinion is that the whole, uh, like how we address a problem begins with first acknowledgement of the problem then understanding the magnitude of the problem and then identifying solutions and actually implementing the solutions. The first step is to, is to acknowledge that there is a problem. And I think the oncology community has, has come to that point. Previously, we did not even acknowledge that there is a problem. Now we have come to the step of acknowledging the problem and understanding the magnitude. And this abstract is important in showing us how, like, honestly, I knew that there was a problem, but I did not expect that it was of this big magnitude. So Hans, were you surprised with that? Actually, I'm pretty surprised the number was so high. You know that it, it happens in, unfortunately, a lot of professions and also in our profession, also maybe depending a bit on the specialty, but I never thought it would have been that high. Did you have, uh, Bish, a sort of weird and wonderful abstract of the meeting? What about some of those AI machine learning things? They're pretty astonishing, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to one day being replaced by a machine. (laughs) It is pretty incredible. We had that at ASCO and then I have to go to my clinic and we have to write up our chemotherapy use. As with every intervention, we need to, we need to look for good data so that, but in the, in the field of oncology, I think there is always that importance of human interaction. You wouldn't want an artificial intelligence to you wouldn't expect an artificial intelligence machine to provide the humanistic care and the emotional reaction that we need in oncology. That's a great note to end on, Bish. It's been fantastic chewing the fat of ASCO with you. (laughs) Thank you very much. I I, I enjoy these meetings all the time. And thanks, Hans. I hope uh, you've learned a lot. I've learned so much today. Really interesting. Fantastic. Bish, we want you on lots. Are we your favourite podcast of all that you do? Yes, of course. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> We've got to use that in our promo. Thank because, you. Because in, in other podcasts, there are only one host. Here I get to talk with three different hosts. <laughs> and and we hear the American ones are very serious, huh? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, this is my only opportunity to connect directly to an Australian audience. We have a global audience, actually, because there's uh, Hans's mother listens every yeah, week we in have, Belgium. Uh, <laughs> we have two Belgians that listen to the podcast. Oh, and and my, my daughter has to sit through the podcast as well oh, when I play it in home. Yeah, Fantastic. <laughs> We're truly global. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Bish. Wonderful. Thank Thanks, Hans. Much. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Bye. Over and out. Bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.